Sepsis, or the infection causing sepsis, starts before a patient goes to the hospital in nearly 87% of cases. Sepsis is a medical emergency. If you or your loved one has an infection that's not getting better or is getting worse, act fast. Get medical care immediately. Ask your healthcare professional, could this infection be leading to sepsis? And if you should go to the emergency room, learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. Let's Fix Work is proudly sponsored by Ultimate Software. Human resources, payroll, talent management, they've got it all. Please visit ultimatesoftware.com to learn more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today, I'm talking to Max Yoder, founder and CEO of an Indianapolis-based company called Lessonly. Max is also the author of Do Better Work, Finding Clarity, Camaraderie, and Progress in Work and Life. In today's episode, Max and I flex our Midwestern accents and talk about training, of course, because that's what his company does, but also vulnerability, leadership, and even nonviolent communication. Not bad for a kid from Goshen, Indiana. He's made good. So if you like tech entrepreneurs who don't pat themselves on the back for simply being CEOs, you're going to love Max. So sit tight and I'll be right back with more Max Yoder and Let's Fix Work. Work is broken, and so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Max. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Thank you for having me, Lori. I appreciate it. Oh, man. It's been a while since I've seen you. The last time we spent any time together was in Cincinnati at Disrupt HR. I have the luxury of knowing who you are and what you're all about and your ethos, but my audience does not. So why don't you tell the listeners what Max and Lessonly is all about? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Max Yoder. I started a company called Lessonly about six and a half years ago. And our goal really at the time was let's take a little different approach to training software. There was a lot of people we talked to who just weren't really thrilled with anything they were finding in the training software space. And we kind of wondered why the heck is that? Why would it be that something so important as training, the software side of it seems to be letting people down? Because we didn't know anything about training, we just started building the training software that we'd want to use and we'd want to be on the other end of. And now, six and a half years later, we have a great batch of customers, 650 of them. We have about 110 employees. And the most enjoyable part of my job is really just with those 110 teammates, figuring out how to do work a little bit better every week, every month, every year. And, you know, if you would ask me six and a half years ago how work should go, I would have said I have no idea. I don't think I have no idea at this point. I still think there's a lot to learn, but it's been really fun to pick up on some things along the way. And I'd love to talk with you about them today. And funny you should mention Cincinnati. I just bought tickets to go see a show in Cincinnati like three hours ago. And I don't do that every day. Where are you going? Who are you going to see? I'm going to go see Iron and Wine. Iron and Wine is a gentleman named Sam Beam, if you ever heard of him. And he's one of my favorites. My wife and I danced to an Iron and Wine song after we got married. He is the guy who really inspired me to write music. He did it out of his living room in his home, and then he got a record deal. So I've never I've never gotten a record deal, but I started recording out of my home because I figured if he can do it, well, I can give it a shot too. So yeah, he's going to be recording with a symphony. He's doing three shows all year with the symphony, and I'm pumped. That is fascinating and also awesome. Well, Cincinnati is a great town, underrated in my opinion, and it was fabulous to see you there. You were a young 
man in a very bright spot on stage in a sea of HR ladies. And yeah, so I yeah. can't imagine that six and a half years ago when you were thinking about starting a training company, you really understood the landscape of the HR and HR tech market. But here you were speaking to that audience. What's your impression of HR today? I think it's a very tough job. We have a leader at our company, Megan Jarvis. She's she's really the overseer of all things talent. And there's a lot of different responsibilities that are put in HR. And I find that one of them is tends to be training. And it's usually around two things. There's manager training and there's compliance. Those things have a lot of importance. If we can't get our new managers or our existing managers and make them better, the company is going to struggle. What I also see happening, though, is that because training is kind of default put on HR, all training is put on HR. And that's something that we've kind of pushed back against, which is to say, wait a second, sales managers and customer service teams, which are kind of the teams that we work with the most, they have these tremendous needs for training. It's not the domain expertise of HR to understand how to teach somebody how to be better at sales or how to teach somebody to be better at customer service. Why are we putting that responsibility on to the leaders and the managers in the customer service teams and the sales teams? HR already has a lot to do. So what we've done is said, this should be owned by sales teams and customer service teams. HR can have a part in it and they can play a role in it if they want to. But training should be owned by the people who are managing and overseeing the given teams, especially when it's domain specific. So a lot of HR people are coming around to that. I think when we first started, that wasn't something that was received very well. But I think the more and more we talk about it and the more and we, we evangelize it, the more and more people say, I can see that. What do you think, Lori? I don't disagree. In fact, I think some of that work should be done by the people within the functions, within the departments, just because there's a sense of ownership, there's a sense of pride, it gets right. done better. And when you have somebody like HR kind of overseeing it, it becomes almost like a nanny state. Yep. And yep. you miss the total point of the training. Instead, you're trying to please HR instead of really learning and really understanding and digesting the content in a way I think that's more important. I'm with you, Max. I love your theory and I love the the spirit behind it. I think what's interesting to me is that there are so many HR tech companies out there that sell into HR or sell into HR in an adjacent way. And they have the worst human resources practices. They don't invest in it themselves. They don't believe in leadership development. They don't do thoughtful succession management projects. They're just assholes. I don't know how else to say it, right? Nobody likes working for those companies. Sure. And here you are. Culture is so incredibly important to you. The climate of your organization matters to you. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and about being a leader in a field that necessarily doesn't have a lot of companies that demonstrate that kind of leadership? Well, I appreciate you saying that. It seems to me that if I'm in a position where I get to hire the people that I want to hire and work with and you know the types of people that I think are just really energizing and they're self-starting, it's important to me that we leave a good impression on people. And our belief is whether we can serve you or not at Lessonly, we should be kind, we should be thoughtful, and we should be clear. What I've learned about kind of instilling that behavior is that if I'm not doing something, I should not expect anybody else to. I was fortunate enough to go on a walk in the woods with a neuroanatomist. Her name's Jill Bolte-Taylor. Wait, wait, wait. What is a neuroanatomist? Uh, somebody who studies the brain. Uh, and, and her title is neuroanatomist. And I couldn't tell you the difference between that and a neuroscientist, but I want to make sure I get her title right. So it's, Yeah, it's, no, thank you. I'm, I'm glad I asked. All yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So she's, she studies the brain and she's uh, very smart about human behavior. And I was walking through the woods with her, which was really fun. And I said to her, hey, Jill, I'm ha having trouble getting my teammates to do a certain thing. And she was like, well, Max, are you doing it? If I remember correctly, I can't remember exactly what it was. I think it was taking time off. But she was basically like, hey, if you're not doing it, don't expect anybody else to. And she really unlocked in me just the power of modeling. And, and people know the power of modeling, but I think they overlook the power of modeling. You know, I think of it kind of just as a trickle down effect. 
If I'm taking time off, if I'm going on vacation, if I'm not texting on the weekends or working on the weekends, other people will feel comfortable doing the same. If I'm sending notes on the weekends where people are going to, even if they're not doing it themselves, they're going to feel a responsibility to. So however I treat people, that's how other people are going to treat them because that's my job is to set a tone. It's really helped me just kind of sharpen myself. If I'm doing a behavior I wouldn't want to see somebody else do, well, that's not going to go very far. And I should apologize for that. And I should figure out how to do the behavior that I want to see in everybody else. It really shapens and sharpens you up when you have to think that way. What I've always loved when I listen to you is listening to your earnestness and your sincerity. I mean, you're one of these CEOs who's trying to get it right. And that has always left such a positive impression on me. And you're not just... Yeah, you're not just a CEO who's concerned about the numbers. You're not a CEO who's just concerned about a limited thing. You do a lot of things in your role. And one of the things you've done is you've written a book to try to articulate your philosophy. So can you tell us a little bit about your book and and what really drove you to write that? Yeah, you bet. It's called Do Better Work. And Do Better Work is our mission at Lesson Lee. We say if we can help two people do better work, they will live better lives. And the cool thing about training software is if we can teach somebody how to do their job a little bit better, 1% better, 2% better, they're going to feel more confident in their role. They're going to feel more competent in their role. And that's not just going to go away when they walk out the door to go home. They're going to have a feeling of levity and a feeling of assuredness that they take home to their friends or their family. So when we think about doing better work, we think that's a direct impact on your job, but it also walks home with you. And we think that's pretty darn special. So the book is basically our chance to encapsulate, well, what do we mean by doing better work? You know, you can say these big, broad things that sound really good, but what does it mean to do better work? And the book is eight chapters that highlight behaviors that anybody on a team can put to work or can do. And if they do them, the likelihood of us making progress on that team goes up. An example is like sharing before you're ready or having a difficult conversation. And I'm laying out these behaviors so I can make sure my teammates are doing them. Because what I've seen is when my teammates do them, we make a lot more progress, but they're not maybe evenly distributed across the team. So I took a year to write about them. And the idea was, if this helps our team, it's going to help other teams. So let's write it in a way that it gives practical advice to our teams, not just kind of theory, but practice. How do you actually do these things that I'm saying are important? Why does it matter that they're important? And, you know, the goal is if it helps our team, it'll help others. And the main focus is how do we create clarity on a team and how do we create camaraderie on a team. Clarity is all about understanding what works, why it works, and how to do it. So, you know, what are we after as a team? What matters and what doesn't matter? Do we know what we're aiming for? That's clarity. And do I know what role I have in that aim? And do I know what role you have in that aim? If we have a better and better understanding every day and we have more and more clarity uh, on a team, that, that's a really good thing. You match that with camaraderie, which is mutual trust and respect. If I want for you the same things that I want for myself, if I'm cheering you on instead of trying to cut you down, we're going to build mutual trust and respect. When we have clarity and we have camaraderie, we're going to make a lot of progress. So the eight behaviors that I lay out in the book are all focusing on building more clarity and more camaraderie on a team so we can make more progress. Those are just such solid, smart, Midwestern sensibilities. I, <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> like when I that. listen to you talk, I can tell you're based in Indianapolis, correct? If yes, that's right. that's right. That's right. Yeah. And there's something about being in the heart of America that just gets you to brass tacks. And yeah. that's really what I love about Lesson Lane, what I loved about the book. And in chapter one of your book, you call it a love letter to vulnerability. Yeah. Vulnerability is one of these things where it could be a buzzword or it could really flip and mean something. So why do you use the word vulnerability? And what do you think that has to do with work? When you're thinking about clarity or camaraderie, any of the behaviors that I write about after that first chapter, they all require some level of vulnerability. They all require some level of saying, I don't know what to do and I don't have all the answers and I don't necessarily know the way. When people posture and they act like they have the answer and they know the way, even when they don't, we're not going to make a lot of progress. What we're going to do is we're going to think we're making progress or we're, we're not going to communicate very well. And what we're going to find out is people weren't on the same page. The things that we needed to get done weren't getting done. 
Vulnerability is just basically as simple as you saying, I don't know, or me saying, I don't know, when maybe somebody might expect us to. So I want to keep vulnerability, that word, really practical. It is just the idea of you and I are not superheroes. You and I don't have all the answers. We don't have all the insights. And only as a team, only as a group of people, are we going to find the way forward. But I don't think people know that. I think people show up at work and they think, well, if I ever want to be a manager, if I ever want to be a leader, I have to posture as though I got this. I got the kind of Steve Jobs style of, I'm so smart, you wouldn't even know what to do with me. Or I'm so smart, I'm going to blow your hair back. Nobody's like that. You know, we all have gaps. We all have gaps in our armor. So vulnerability is acknowledging that we are people and we're humans and not hiding our humanity. Because I think that's what brings people together is understanding we're all working hard on the same thing, which is trying to be better humans. So many people talk about being better humans, talk about humanity, bringing humanity back to the workforce. And yet performance management systems, cultures, climates, everything really clips people's wings. You bet. Punishes them for being human. While you're modeling a climate where people are encouraged to be vulnerable, I can imagine listeners who are driving to work right now, listening to this podcast, thinking there is no way I'm going to be vulnerable at work. What do you do with that? What do you tell someone who just has no space to be vulnerable in their job? First, I would tell them to try. Well, a lot of times what I hear from folks is I can't do that in my job and it's because of other people that I can't do it. My advice is you can get a job elsewhere, so so give it a shot. And if you find out it's not well-received, go get a job elsewhere. Because if you're living in an environment where you can't expose to the, the fact that you're not a superhuman who has all the answers, you're not gonna live a rich and fulfilling life. And I'd much prefer you give it a shot, find out that you're not gonna be received well in, the, in an environment and get into a new environment. What I don't love is when people talk about their jobs as though they're locked into them. Well, I can't do that in my atmosphere, so therefore I won't do it at all. There are so many people who will employ you. You're probably highly employable if you believe it as much. You know, if you believe you're highly employable, you probably are. So I would say, first and foremost, have a conversation with your manager and let them know that you don't feel comfortable being vulnerable. Tell them why. Don't blame them. It's probably you that you're not comfortable being vulnerable. You probably never learned to be vulnerable. Nobody probably ever modeled it for you. But talk to them. And if you get shot down, you've learned a lot very fast. And you know what I do with that information is I try to transfer to another manager who might be maybe a little more human in their approach to work. Or I'd go to a different company if the whole culture just won't accept it. We need to vote with our feet in these situations. We can't just sit there and say we're helpless victims of these companies. Max, you are like the first person I've talked to in a really long time who's said the word, you should try. That is so important and I think so missed in career advice. A lot of times we want to help explain away why people are feeling scared or vulnerable or intimidated. And instead of saying, you know what, dare them to fire you. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> you know, like, take a swing, man. Do it. I love that advice. It's so well said. And that theme of bravery comes out in your book when you talk about share before ready. You mentioned it a little bit earlier. But again, a lot of people do not want to share. They want to hold it until it's perfect. Is it perfect really exists? Talk a little bit about share before ready. It's one of my favorites. So the idea of sharing before you're ready is when you're starting on a project or an initiative, the natural behavior is to go in a hole and try to start working on the project and figure it out all by yourself because you want to come out and say, ta-da, look what I just did. I've done this beautiful thing and I did it all by myself. The reality is you can only see so many vantage points, so many angles. What we want to do is we want to work on the things that are needed. We want to get things done that are needed. And the only way to get things done that are needed is by communicating with the people who you're ultimately going to deliver whatever it is you're working on to. And so saying, what am I missing here? So sharing before you're ready is this idea of get a bullet point outline, get an overview of whatever it is that you're thinking and share it with people and say, hey, 
what do you think of this? What am I missing? I'm going to maybe put a presentation together. Here are the slides that I think belong in the presentation. Here's a rough outline of how I think they're going to work. Can I walk you through them? And can you tell me what you think is going well with this and what you think I could throw out and what you think I should add in? Just getting other people's opinions earlier is all what sharing before you're ready is about. And it's so, so simple, but it's so, so hard because we are perfectionists. So many of us, even if we won't admit it, we want to impress people. We want to look really smart. We want to say, look what I did. But the reality is what we tend to do when we go into vacuums is we come back out and we go, ta-da, and everybody goes, that's not what we needed. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's a yeah. big waste of time. Totally waste of time. Sharing before you're ready means you have to be brave and you have to go first. And you do. I think there's a way to do that where you can go first and be brave and not put people off. And in your book, you talk about something that is close to my heart, which is the theory, the thesis behind nonviolent communication. I've read the book. I've gone to webinars. I love nonviolent communication. Can you talk a little bit about it and define it? Because we've never talked about this on Let's Fix Work. And I love that you some expertise in it. So if you can share a little bit about nonviolent communication and how it fits into this idea of fixing work. Conflict is going to happen at work. And I think a lot of times we go into new work environments and we're like, well, hopefully this place won't have conflict because the last one had a lot of conflict and I'd really love to be in a place where there isn't conflict. What I like to remind people is conflict is, it's not going anywhere. It's it's joy, it's sadness, just like joy and sadness. You know, we expect these things to exist. We should not expect conflict to dissipate in any environment. I want you to think about the conflict, Lori, that you have with yourself. We all have inner conflict, right? I have inner conflict, you have inner conflict. We should not expect there not to be conflict in a room of two people or eight people when we can't figure out the conflict within ourselves. Conflict is everywhere. Well, a lot of times conflict at work just boils down to, I have a job and you have a job and some of our responsibilities might rub together. If I'm in finance and you're in marketing, your job is to spend money and my job is to make sure we keep cash in the bank. We have conflict, not because we have a personal issue, but because we have kind of systemic issues. We have systemic responsibilities. Nonviolent communication is just a way for us to talk about how we're feeling when we feel conflict. The idea is we we tend to learn how to judge one another, but we don't tend to communicate what we're seeing, which is our observations, how they make us feel. We tend to kind of express our thoughts. We tend to say, hey, Lori, what you did was rude or you're being a jerk instead of saying, hey, Lori, three times I've emailed you about the project and I haven't heard back from you. I'm disappointed. I need support. My request is that when you see those emails, I'd really just appreciate it if you'd respond. It's pretty basic, right? Yeah, but it's such a foreign way for people to communicate with one another. And I remember when I first learned about nonviolent communication, I really found that I lacked a language for my feelings. Right. And so what I did is I went on the internet and I printed up something called the feeling wheel and I got a whole bunch of words to describe how I'm feeling. And during the day when I was struggling and having conflict, I stopped talking about my thoughts and I went to this stupid chart. I'm like, yeah. how do I feel right now? Like, And I'm a writer for God's sake, right? Yeah. And I lack the language, the vocab to describe what was going on in my heart and my soul. We weren't taught it. You weren't taught it. I wasn't taught it. I can't tell you how much time I spent in school and how little time I spent learning about how to manage conflict. But I deal with conflict every day and I, I deal with geometric equations very little. I wish we spent a lot more time with it. We have a dobetter.work, which is uh, where you can check out the book if you'd like to, at dobetter.work forward slash feelings. All of Marshall Rosenberg's, uh, who wrote the book Nonviolent Communication, they've allowed us to relist all the feelings there. So if you want to understand feelings, please do, because a lot of times the vocabulary for feelings, like you said, it's just not there. We'll make sure we link to that in the show notes. We have talked a little bit about your book and how it covers the world of work and fixing work and lessons from Lessonly, which can get very meta. Which ideas from the book have you seen to be most impactful either within Lessonly or within the clients that you work with on a regular basis? 
I wrote all of them in there because I think, you know, they all have a lot of weight. Sharing before you already have difficult conversations. Those are two really important ones that have been with us a long time. But I have to say, getting more agreements, it's chapter seven in the book. It's called Get More Agreements. It's this idea of we have a lot of expectations that we don't say out loud. We expect things of people that we don't communicate to them and we don't allow them to weigh in on our expectations to get to a place where we've agreed on something. This happens in every relationship where somebody expects something of somebody else, but they don't necessarily articulate their expectation. They don't give the other person a chance to weigh in and say, well, here's my my thoughts on the matter and get to a negotiated arrangement. What we need to do is get to more negotiated arrangements, which I call agreements in the book. Steve Chandler is a is a coach. He came up with this idea. I write about it in the book. I love it to death because whether it's my wife and I marching forward and trying to make progress together or a colleague of mine marching forth together, none of us want to have expectations laid on us that we're not aware of that we didn't have a say in. What we do want is to get to a spot where we have an agreement where I know what's expected of me and you know what's expected of you. Our likelihoods of winning together go up big time. And if we don't win together, Together. Maybe I do something wrong and I don't adhere to the agreement. You now have ground to stand on to come to me and say, hey, Max, I'm frustrated. We had an agreement on this and I see it breaking down. You get to be frustrated with me at that time because I agreed to do something with you. But until then, you can't be frustrated with me if we've never talked about it. But you wouldn't believe how many times people at work are frustrated with other people about things they've never even discussed with them. Hey, everybody, it's no secret that I love and believe in the future of human resources. More importantly, I believe in you. One way you can change the game for HR and for yourself is to focus on your continuing education. Ultimate Software sponsors free workshops around the country where HR leaders, recruiters, payroll professionals, and even consultants can earn free SHRM, HRCI, and APA credits. I've been to these Ultimate Software workshops. They're highly interactive, fun, and you'll learn a ton about the future of work and the world of HR. Visit ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW to learn more and to sign up for a workshop near you. That's ultimatesoftware forward slash LFW to find a workshop and earn recertification credits and stay on top of your game. That's ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW. And maybe I'll see you at a city near you. Well, I would believe it. I worked in human resources. No, I know you would believe it. Sorry. Sorry. I I, I was being judgmental there. Yeah, my bad. Right, right. I'm I'm laughing because there are so many things that HR could do and leaders could do, but instead they're fighting old battles. They're thinking of management in a very 20th century way from a top-down perspective. It's all about widgets. It's all about numbers. It's all about productivity. Where I think leadership and management is all about the human heart. (laughs) And it's all about making sure that everybody has their unmet needs met in whatever way, shape, or form. And if we relate to one another on a human level, the work will get done. You bet. But we just don't do these things. We don't do agreements, right? And so I can imagine, again, someone driving to work, they're in Chicago, they're on the Kennedy, right? There's traffic and they're like, agreements? That's not even a language that is allowed in the front door of my company. So do you have any advice for someone other than reading your book? How can they start to get a little bit closer to being a little bit more human and having these conversations at work? So instead of being frustrated with somebody and just kind of keeping it in, you can come to somebody and use what I call a going forward statement. And a going forward statement is, hey, going forward, can we try it this way? Explain to the person why this way is beneficial to the both of you if possible, and then ask them what they think of that idea. Hey, going forward, instead of taking the route that we took earlier, do you mind if we try it a different way next time? And they can go, sure, or they can go, yeah, that sounds okay, but can I maybe modify that a little bit? When you get to a point where we both agree that going forward, you can try something a new way, say, hey, can we agree on that? And then the person goes, ideally, yes. And if, <laughs> and if they're unwilling to agree on anything, I don't know what to tell you other than I hope you get out of there. I really do. Life is too darn short. 
you know, just use a going forward statement of, hey, going forward, instead of trying to punish somebody for not behaving a way that you never told them historically that you didn't want them to behave, say going forward, can we get some this similar ground to stand on, get that agreement, and then if they don't adhere to it, come back to them and say, hey, I'd really like to stick to that agreement that we made. You've got common ground to stand on because you made common ground. You're allowed to come back and say, I would like to stick to it. They, they can say, hey, I'm going to break it going forward because I've now learned new information. I don't want to keep the agreement anymore, but at least you've communicated with them. I'm not saying they should behave that way, but at least you've tried. Max, as I listen to you talk, I wonder, relatively speaking, you're a young man and you've got a lot of really thoughtful, wise things to say about the world of work. How did you get like this? How did you get to a point in your life where you gave a shit about work? Like most people your age have different aims. They have different ideas. They have different goals. And you care about the world of work. You care about the people who work for you. Why? Why Why aren't you like, I don't know, skiing or doing whatever it is people do when they're in a CEO role and they have a little bit of cash and they have a little bit of power. You're in the trenches. Why is that? I come from Goshen, Indiana. It's northern Indiana. There is a great disdain in Goshen, Indiana for people abusing power. And I'm sure there's a great disdain in a lot of places for it. But just growing up, the idea of if you get power and then you take advantage of it, wow, you are a very old story. If you get power and you don't take advantage of it, that's a new story. We need more of those new stories. So my hope is just to not let people down who look to me and say, don't do not do the same thing everybody else does, is abuse your power and not give a hoot about other people. I have this great desire for people to feel more joy. I think sometimes I'm a little overly compassionate where I look at what's happening to other people in the world and I just get sad. And that's not healthy, right? Like I can't take on other people's feelings. I have to have a balance. But I think I was just lucky to have some genes that maybe made me a little more naturally empathetic. And then I'm in a position now where I can actually help people think differently about their relationships. And there's just so many people who are sad and were never taught how to be actors in their worlds. They're kind of passive recipients of their worlds instead of actors in their worlds. And the first time I got to go up in front of the team and tell them something that I was really pumped about was nonviolent communication. I mean, it was really one of those things where I was like, I get to bring this to the team and I was really nervous to do it. And then I did it and somebody told me a story about going home and using it with their husband. And somebody told me a story about going home and using it with their friend. These were not work-related at all, but my teammates were living richer and fuller lives because of something that I was fortunate enough to take the time to read. It was handed to me by one of my other teammates. Her name's Casey. And then I got to bring it back up and make it a, a big thing at Lessonly. And it worked for people. And that was really exhilarating. It's intoxicating. So that's that's a long answer is I don't want to do the same old stuff. We've seen that story enough times. I put a lot of pressure on myself not to do it. And I get nervous. I'm, I'm going to let people down. But so far, so good. One of the things that I'm most excited about with Lessonly is that you put together a conference every year and it's a yeah. little bit different. It's not your traditional user conference. So can you talk a little bit about the Lessonly conference and maybe some of the speakers you've had and what you're looking forward to in 2019? Yeah. So we launched Yellow Ship last year. That's what we're calling our conference. It's basically a play on the word yellow, which is our brand color and the word fellowship. We just want to get people together and share ideas about doing better work. And last year, we brought the neuroanatomist Jill Bolte-Taylor on stage, and she told us about, you know, the fact that we have power over how we feel. We have power over who we let affect our feelings. And that was really, really powerful. We brought Erin Gruel on stage, and, and she did this really great conversation. She's an inner city teacher, went through a lot of struggles. She proved to everybody in the audience that basically saying, my culture won't allow for me to behave a certain way. It's a BS response. You should try, because Erin Gruel's culture didn't allow her to behave a certain way, and she tried, and it worked. 
it was a tough, tough culture. And then it just brings our customers together to share ideas. A big part of doing better work is just kind of going up there and saying what works and what hasn't. And you know, when you, you gave me a great compliment just now, I want you to know I've messed up in my job. But the cool thing about modeling behavior is I get to turn around and say, I'm sorry. And that's the behavior I want to see from other people. So when I mess up, if I apologize for it, I'm still modeling, right? I make a mistake. I need other people to apologize. And we get to come and share these stories on the yellow ship stage about people who made mistakes, learn from them, or people who hit the jackpot and they can teach us how to hit the jackpot too in certain approaches at work. I love it all. And as we start to wrap up today, Max, if there's one piece of advice you can give to someone who feels like their workplace is broken, and you've given a lot of great pieces of advice today, what do you think is the first step in fixing it? Don't assume that the people who run the company know how broken things are. I talk about a dusty shelf at my house where, a lot where I noticed that a shelf was dusty at my house, but my wife, when we moved in, had put dishes on top of it. It was at a cupboard. She'd put dishes on top. So I figured, well, it must not be that dusty because she would have never put the dishes on top of a dusty shelf if she really thought it was dusty. So I walked away and said, well, she would have told me, Max, clean that if it were dusty. And because she hadn't said anything, I didn't clean it. Then I realized, well, I'm six foot and she's five two. She put the dishes up on that shelf. She just couldn't see up there. It wasn't that she didn't think it was dusty, it was that she didn't see any of the dust, but I assumed a lot of her. And I think people do that at work a lot. They think that their bosses or their managers see the same things they do. So they don't say it out loud because they think it's the intended behavior. And it's not the intended behavior a lot of the time. There's just a lot going on a lot of the time. So first and foremost, bring it up. And don't just bring it up once and say, well, I did my job. Be persistent. And if you're not getting progress, keep bringing it up to the next person or the next person or that person's boss. I know it's hard and I know there's a lot of nuance to the things that I'm saying, but just own whatever your requests are. Own whatever your needs are. And if you feel like you've tried and tried and tried and tried, you will know at that point that maybe you need to go somewhere else. But don't make it one conversation and don't make it zero conversations. Make it many conversations. Keep it top of mind if it still matters. Wise advice from a wise leader. Max, thank you so much for being a guest on Let's Fix Work. Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and how you'd like to be connected with on the internet? Sure. Yeah. I'm on LinkedIn at Max Yoder and I'm on Twitter at, at Max Yoder, all one word on Twitter. And then, you know, the dobetter.work and lessonly.com. Those are the two URLs that will probably lead you to the most information. And I'm just really appreciative of the time. Thank you for just letting us have this conversation. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, I learned a ton and I'm so glad we got to talk about nonviolent communication and ownership and accountability. These are things that are near and dear to my heart and it's great to see it out in the real world of work. So thanks again for being a guest on Let's Fix Work. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back right after the break with more Let's Fix Work. All executives need to be podcasting. Podcasts are the number one way for executives to create an authentic and trusting relationship with employees and potential customers. That's why my producer, Danny Osment, just did a three-part series on why executives should be podcasting. Want to give your company a brand or a face? Want to connect with current or future employees? Are you interested in pivoting out of your current position and into a new career or personal brand? Well, if you're an executive who is podcast curious, head on over to dannyosmond.com forward slash executives and learn how a podcast builds credibility, how podcasting gives you a leg up against the competition, and how a podcast can power a speaking career and help you write a book. Don't worry about finding the time to listen. Each episode is less than 10 minutes and Danny has put all three episodes in one place. Head on over to dannyosmond.com forward slash executives to listen and find more resources. That's dannyosmond.com forward slash executives. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Max Yoder. All of the resources, the books, the tips, the tricks, all of it, it's in the show notes. But a word, please. Many of you listen to Let's Fix Work because you're looking for work. 
I don't know if Lessonly is hiring, but every CEO who appears on Let's Fix Work is always hiring talented people. Like they never say no to someone great. So if you like what you heard today, make sure you connect with Max on LinkedIn. And more importantly, he mentioned his head of talent, Megan Jarvis. So I've included her information as well in the show notes. If you end up getting a job at Lessonly, would you please let me know? I would absolutely love to hear about it. Let's Fix Work is underwritten by Ultimate Software. They are fantastic partners. And even if you don't work in human resources, head on over to ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW because you know you've got a neighbor or a cousin or someone down the block who works in payroll, HR, operations at a small business, and they need HR help. And they would absolutely benefit from one of these workshops. So ultimatesoftware.com forward slash LFW and have a look. You get free SHRM, APA, and HRCI recertification credits for attending. And finally, Let's Fix Work is produced by Danny Osmond at Emerald City Productions. Danny is just a fantastic guy. We hung out in Nashville, had some tacos, and people email me all the time and ask, how did you get into podcasting, Lori? And like the theme today is trying. I just tried. (laughs) So on Danny Osmond's website are resources, tips, tools. If you're podcast curious, it's for you. Now that's all for today and I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes. 